Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're bringing you some listener mail today. We've got our bronze automaton here with us, our mailbot, Malos. Say hello, Malos. Now, Malos has a new function. In addition to delivering our listener mail, Malos now also eats and poops. That's right. Uh, you know, inspired by a recent episode we did about uh, the idea of creating machines that can consume and then defecate, uh, it made sense to update Melos uh, so that uh, he can do this as well. And now he does. It's not perfect. If you, uh, you know, if you analyze uh, the various bits of robot scat that he's leaving around uh, the studio here, you know, you'll, you'll notice that it looks uh, uh, rather different from what you might find in the wild. It's a little, um, uh, you know, the, the formation is a little suspect. A little more radioactive than normal. Yeah, a little, uh, a little too cubical in nature. Not to say that cubicle poop is not found in nature, uh, because it is. But uh, but still, uh, we're working on it. We feel like we're still working out some of the kinks in his mechanical uh, intestines. Yes, Melos, do not take this critique harshly. You, you, you have noble ecor, and we believe in you. All right, so I think we should start off by reading some mail we got in response to our episode on the ancient weapon technology, the Otolotl. Now, you remember this was uh, the episode we did. I think it was right after our last listener mail episode about uh, the the ancient hunting and and weapons technology of this lever that would be used to accelerate dart throws – and has been found all over the world. We actually heard from one very experienced and knowledgeable listener, and uh, th- this was some exciting feedback. So let's jump right into it. Uh, this is from our listener, Angelo. Angelo says, Dear Robert and Joe, my name is Angelo Robledo. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And I am on the board of directors of the World Autolotl Association. I run their social media accounts and host Autolotl tournaments in southern Nevada. I'm an experimental archaeology researcher at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and have been making and throwing Autolotls for 10 years. First off, thank you for taking the time to do such a thorough podcast episode on the Otolotl. It's rare that this artifact gets any attention at all, let alone to the level of a popular podcast. Your research and citations were great. It's impossible to go wrong by researching Dr. John Whitaker, an Otolotl research legend and fellow board member at the WAA. I was hoping to clarify a few things regarding banner stones. Remember, those were some artifacts that are these sort of weights or stones that are associated with Autolotl findings in archaeology. Uh, and he continues, uh, also flexible autolotls and flexible darts based on what you did and didn't discuss in your episode. Banner stones have been a point of contention in the autolotl community for decades, but some important distinctions need to be made. There are some rocks slash weights attached to autolotls that are not banner stones and are not contested. These stones are generally flat on one side and no wider than the width of the autolotl itself, unlike banner stones, which are definitionally wider than an autolotl protruding from the sides. 
These regular weights, or boat stones as I call them, based on their canoe-like appearance, have a well-understood and largely uncontested purpose. They're very prevalent in the American Southwest and used prominently on basket-maker-style atolotls, though they can be found elsewhere. These stones serve as a counterweight, offsetting the length and weight of the dart. With an average six-foot dart and two-foot atolotl, there's quite a bit of dart sticking out in front of the hand, causing strain on the wrist and causing the tip to to dip when aiming for long periods of time. The stone balances this weight by adding mass to the rear of the atolotl, nullifying wrist strain. This stone also helps smooth out the throw by adding more mass near the spur in the same way that swinging a wooden baseball bat can feel smoother than a foam one. Okay, that makes sense to me. I, I can picture this. And also, it totally makes sense about uh, balancing it on the wrist. When we heard uh, – we're going to read messages or, or summarize messages from several other listeners who talked about their experience with autolotls. And one thing several of them said was that that actually maybe the hardest part of it uh, when they were learning to use an autolotl was just like holding the dart in place while they were trying to aim their throw. Yeah, you know, it reminds. On one hand, it reminds me of things I've read about the the use of the longbow um, in medieval times and how uh, just the, the the sheer physical demands of that. And that's something that can is easy to overlook in discussing ancient in, inventions that are more that require more physicality on the part of the user. Is that uh, is that they are you know highly physical devices in many cases, mm-hmm. and I can't remember if I mentioned this in in the Atlatl episode that we recorded, but uh, just my own experience of using sort of Atlatl esque uh, ball throwing devices, mm-hmm. like just like the throw a tennis ball yeah. for a dog, yeah, or in this case, like throw some sort of a Nerf uh, you know whizzing football type uh, uh, projectile. Mm-hmm. Uh, just playing around with that with with my son, uh, I was I was noticing like wow, I am straining new things in my arm that I was not aware of, you right. know? Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the, the physical demands of the invention uh, are, are definitely worth uh, worth mentioning. Uh, but so this comes back to the idea of the banner stones, which we mentioned there was some archaeological controversy about because it's not entirely known what these stones were for. Were they decorative or did they actually serve a purpose? And Angelo here gets into that. He says, the contention is in banner stones, which are often too large and awkward to serve the same purpose as boat stones. Some say they still function as regular weights. Others say they are simply status symbols, hence the banner, and were not functional. Still others state other uses for such stones, such as arrow straighteners. Archaeologists themselves cause more trouble than intended by improperly labeling banner stones from regular atolotl weights or failing to differentiate what they're talking about. This brings us to flexible atolotls. While some studies have shown there to be a benefit to flexible atolotls, this often requires the aid of high-speed footage to properly calibrate, and the results are often negligible. Other studies show no benefit to having a flexible atolotl. The biggest argument against flexible atolotls being an intentional innovation is the fact that an overwhelming majority of atolotls found or documented are not flexible. In fact, in my 10 years of atolotling and attendance of dozens of events, I have yet to see a flexible atolotl in use or make one myself. I also cannot recall a flexible atolotl in the dozens of atolotl artifacts I've seen or studied. Finally, on to flexible darts. The fact that the dart flexes is arguably the single most important part of the entire atolotl system. I was disappointed to not hear you discuss how vital this is. 
The flexibility of darts is what differentiates them from hand-thrown spears. Autolotl darts are propelled from the rear behind the dart's center of gravity, meaning the force is transferred to 100% of the dart. A spear, however, is thrown from the midpoint, a much more inefficient force transfer. There is a trade-off, however. The weight of the dart tip wishes to stay in place according to Newton's laws, and the throwing motion generates a great deal of force. In the split second before the dart disengages from the autolotl, that force needs to go somewhere. If the dart is stiff, then that force immediately causes the tip to raise as the autolotl flicks the rear end of the dart underneath it. The stiffer the dart, the greater the effect. The effect would be so great on a perfectly stiff dart that the dart would fishtail in the air and fail to be accurate or even reach the target. A flexible dart, however, allows the excess force to be stored in the dart as it flexes. The tip remains frozen in space as the dart flexes, and at the last moment, the stored energy releases, allowing the dart to disengage from the autolotl. The dart flexes in a specific way during flight, however. The front third of the dart is stiffer than the rear two-thirds, meaning the rear of the dart continues to flex around the tip, which remains on target, during the entire flight. In essence, a flexible dart is 100% necessary for an accurate throw. The engineering of the dart is much more important than the autolotl. A 2x4 with a nail in it can function as an autolotl, but without a perfectly formed flexible dart, the entire system won't work. Arrows shot from a bow are flexible in the same way for the exact same reason. It just happens on a smaller and faster scale. Arrows are also propelled from the rear, just like autolotl darts. In fact, many modern projectile weapons use the same principles found in autolotls. The final thing I wanted to mention was a clarification on the range and accuracy of autolotls when compared to bows or spears. You alluded to but did not explicitly mention the short effective range of a hand-thrown spear. Most credible studies of prehistoric, historic, and modern hand-thrown spears put their maximum effective range or the range where a thrower could reliably, uh, meaning 75% greater chance, hit a target with a flat trajectory and enough force for a fatal injury to be 5 to 7 meters. That's 15 to 22 feet, uh, so that's obviously not very far. The minimum distance at standard autolotl tournaments is 15 meters, or about 48 feet, with a maximum effective range of 25 meters, or about 80 feet, from the top throwers in the world. Around 30 meters, or 100 feet, hit percentage starts dropping drastically. More often than not, spears were for thrusting, and autolotls were used for throwing, despite what Hollywood would lead you to believe. As I previously mentioned, overall, YouTube provided more in-depth analysis on the autolotl than any other non-autolotlists I've ever seen. And uh, Angelo wraps up here. Thanks us again for the episode. Uh, says, uh, just wanted to clarify a few things. Uh, mentions that their Instagram page is at World Autolotl Association, if you want to check that out and see some high-speed footage and, uh, and dart flex. Uh, so, yeah, that was really informative. Uh, thank you very much, Angelo, for getting in touch and for sharing your expertise with us. As soon as I was reading this, yeah, I was picturing the importance of the flexing of the dart, the way like when you release it, sort of the tail, especially when you see this high-speed footage, mm -hmm. the tail of the dart kind of wobbles around while the front of the dart just stays dead on target. Yeah, it's definitely noticeable in, the, in the, a lot of the footage that you see online. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from David. David says, 
I love your show and uh, can't say enough good things about it. Keep doing more shows. I'm catching up on Stuff to Blow Your Mind and listen to End of the World and Two Shifts at Work. But I really love it when it's time for a new episode of Invention. I work at a mindless warehouse facility, and listening to your podcast keeps my brain from atrophy. Although I think my wife is tired of me knowing everything as I have been catching uh, myself interrupting a lot with, actually, did you know? Oh, no. <laughs> it's a nasty habit I picked up from Fact Overlord. Overload. <laughs> from Fact Overlord? <laughs> yeah, now he's Fact Overlord. David, <laughs> Fact Overlord. Don't anyway. be that overlord, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Adelotl. Uh, I worked as a, wild, a wilderness guide for two years and became very interested in primitive tools and weapons. I never used any to actually hunt, but mostly target practice. I just wanted to elaborate on a point you briefly made comparing the Adelotl to, to the bow. I've used bows, all made from high-tech material in a factory quite easily and without much practice and pretty good. I've also made attempts to design and make my own bow from collected wood, not professionally commercial grain, that would be cheating. The result is always very poor. Again, coming back to our our, our commentary on uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator. Oh yeah, or um, or what was what was the MST three K movie that uh, we referenced, uh, where the uh, the individual makes a bow and uh, the, the riff is "Yay, it barely works." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember, but um, at, at any rate, you see that a lot, in, or a fair amount in in, uh, in in films where someone makes their own bow and suddenly it's deadly efficient. Predator being the the, the key um, uh, suspect here. Anyway, David continues, even after reading some instructions and using modern tools, the bows don't come out much better. Uh, They're even harder to use. In my experience, the quality of shot is only as good as the bow, which is very difficult to make without a lot of practice. But I made three or four bad models and one hell of an autolotl in one afternoon, and I feel confident I could make a grade A autolotl in under an hour with only a knife. With only a few hours of practice, I could hit a one-foot diameter tree from 30 feet away with tremendous force, many times getting really poorly made spears to stick in a tree. Without a lot of time and a large learning curve, I don't think I could make a quality enough bow from scratch to do that. Further, I believe at distances under 50 feet, the outlotl gives you much more force but equal accuracy of a bow. If I wanted to bring an animal down in one shot quickly, I truly feel the outlotl is going to cause much more damage than the bow. This also depends on the size of your spear. Many times while living in the wilderness, I would come across animals less than 50 feet away, and at least twice a week, I would find myself accidentally less than 20 feet away. It was very common for me to open my eyes uh, from a, a morning meditation and be in the presence of potential food. And don't forget, Adelotl can be used for fish too in a hurry if you have a clear stream. In conclusion, if someone made an excellent bow, I'd prefer the bow. If I had to figure out my own weapon, I'd choose the Adelotl. All the love, David from Greenville. All right, well, this sort of lines up with what we were saying, right? Uh, The idea that one of the great advantages of the Adelotl is its simplicity and the fact that uh, you know, as we were talking about with some of the survivalists we were reading, that you can pretty easily make one in the field that works not not bad at all. Yeah, and again, coming back to the fact that Dutch should have made an outlottle in Predator mm-hmm. instead of that ridiculous bow. <laughs> you really hung up on this. I no, I just think it would have been a better. It would have made the movie better. It would have made that sequence better, and mm-hmm. it would be, it would have been cooler. Like what's what's. It would have been perfect. More unfamiliar to modern audiences too. Yeah. Well, we actually had one listener get in touch with us. Well, we don't have time to read the email in full, but mentioned an episode of Star Trek: The Original Series, where mm-hmm. in the uh, in the TV episode, 
they had to make primitive weapons on a planet because they were stranded, didn't have their phasers and all that, so they right. made bows. But uh, but the 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 listener writing in mentioned that in the novel adaptation of the episode, they make atlatls instead. I love that. I love it when uh, when someone doing the novelization uh, decides to, to fix something. Yeah. <laughs> Who's that movie novelization writer that you really like? Who did that? Was it the Halloween three adaptation? Oh, I, I don't, I don't remember his name offhand. But uh, you know, there, there, there are various tales of uh, <laughs> of, of movie novelization uh, victories. I mean, I think one of the, the greatest, of course, is Isaac Asimov for Fantastic Voyage. Oh, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm not even aware of this. Yeah, yeah. Who agreed to uh, you know to work on the the, the book version uh, that came out with the film? Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of the consideration was that he got to fix some of the science in the book. Uh, <laughs> and it's a fabulous book. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the movie's fun too. But I fondly remember reading Isaac Asimov's fan, Fantastic Voyage. I never even heard of that before. I got to check that out now. Yeah. Uh, well, so we got a lot of great listener mail about the Adelotl. Way too much to read in full. But since we asked for people's experiences, I did want to just summarize a few more of the messages we received but don't have time to read. We got a message from an Ethan who says that when he was in college, he got to try out an Adelotl in one of his classes. And he found he could aim pretty well after just a few throws. And this was a commonly reported thing from listeners. They said that it was surprisingly easy to get the hang of aiming with it. Another David wrote in and said a similar thing. He says he does historical reenactments and has attended an Adelotl seminar in his opinion. It was much easier than he would have expected to throw and he became fairly accurate after just a few practice throws. Um, our listener Bradley says that when he was a kid, he learned about the autolotl in a class at school, and then he and a friend made an autolotl in a dart later that summer when uh, after a day of practicing, they could sometimes hit a milk jug full of water, though he doesn't say at what distance. Uh, and he also says it was surprisingly easy to make an autolotl in a dart just out of branches that they found. You know, I, I hope it goes without saying, but I do want to just advise everyone here that if you are inspired by all of this and decide to make your own uh, autolotl, that you will uh, exercise common sense. Oh, yeah, of and, course. Uh, and, uh, and, and follow uh, follow directions and advice from some of these organizations that we've mentioned uh, because uh, yeah, that's one of the, the, the potential pitfalls of being able to make a, a fairly efficient uh, deadly weapon weapon from just sticks that you obtain in your natural habitat. Right. Look up safety precautions. Obviously, don't do anything with a living thing downrange mm-hmm. unless you're actually hunting. And then I guess you got to wait till atlatl season, right? What's the what's the, the hunting season for using uh, an atlatl? Oh, I think we talked about this, but I've forgotten about yeah. it. I mean, generally, the trend is the more sort of uh, old-fashioned the weapon, the earlier you get in, right? Uh, I think that might be true. I, I do remember reading something about in, in some places the regulations are different yeah. for, for the Adelaide. But like but. barehanded deer hunting, that like <laughs> that starts super early. <laughs> uh, so speaking of hunting, we also heard from our listener Matt regarding how close you can get to deer without noticing. Uh, Matt says that he's an avid hunter in Ontario and had a few observations about approaching wildlife because that was one of the things we talked about in the episode was like the distance that you can get from prey if you're hunting. Uh, Like uh, how close can you normally get to a deer? Normally, you know, they'll bolt before you get pretty close. But I talked about one experience I had just this year where I kind of walked up on one without it apparently noticing me and I didn't notice it. And how did that make you feel? Like a regular Jason Voorhees. Uh, so uh, Matt says uh, outside the realm of hunting, he says that uh, on the farm, it's easiest to get close to deer during the harvest. Quote, 
They like to eat and take cover within the corn rows and won't run if they're unsure what direction you're coming from. With a couple of pieces of machinery running in different areas, I imagine this can be somewhat disorienting to them, thus making it possible to get pretty close if you know where they are. One sees a lot of wildlife during the harvest season, eagles, owls, rabbits, coyotes, etc., and a nice close-up of an area's deer is always a pleasant treat. Uh, and then with regards to hunting, Matt says, quote, When it comes to hunting, I'm continually amazed how well deer can blend into their environment, as well as how patient they are. Many times I have, not literally but approximately so, nearly walked on top of one or a group of deer. They have an intuition for knowing they've been spot whether they've been spotted or not and whether the safer bet is to run or stay put. Then they make their escape once the hunter, me, is a safe distance past. This is a thing I, I think if we haven't talked about it on our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, I would like to come back and visit sometime. Uh, the sense for having been seen, like mm -hmm. there's debate about to what extent, you know, animals and stuff have a kind of sense for that. Like a, how do they detect whether or not they are detectable or have been detected? I think about this with my cat a lot when uh, when she's like stalking me mm -hmm. in the house, and, and it doesn't seem to make a difference to her if I've seen her or not. Like she's still going to continue stalking me and hunting me for prey. That's recreational stalking. Yeah, it's true. And she, I guess she's she's acting in full predator mode uh, when she's doing that. But of course, the thing about a the, the common house cat is that it is, and one of the reasons that they are ultimately so um, insane is that uh, besides the fact that we've 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 sort of domesticated them and we're keeping them inside of our houses in many cases. Mm -hmm. uh, they are also in this area that they're, you know, they're clearly both, both mega pre predator but also they are prey. Uh, they are small enough to be a prey animal to a, a number of creatures of the wild. It's a strange niche to occupy. All right. Uh, should we take a break before we move on to our next messages? Let's do it. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. All right. So we also heard from uh, someone about our museums episode. Where does the invention of the museum come from? What, is the, what does it mean? And how are we continuing to wrestle with the idea in modern times? So uh, Diane writes in and says, first, Robert and Joe, your podcasts are the very best out there. Aww. I love listening and learning while I work. Especially timely was the museum podcast. I'm a fiber artist and just last week learned that a piece of mine is going to be in an exhibit at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Off the Wall, American Art to Wear, which opens November 9th, and that the piece has been presented to them for their permanent collection. The Philadelphia area is my home base. I went to Moore College in Philadelphia. I am so excited to say the least. Congratulations. Yeah. You're becoming a part of history. <laughs> yeah. Your podcast made me think about what it means to actually have my work in a museum, which I never thought would happen, and how future generations would view it uh, and the time, materials, etc. involved in making it. It, was, uh, it will be surreal to stand there and say to someone, hey, I made that. Anyway, thanks again for the hours of interesting and thoughtful podcasts. Diane. Well, thanks so much for getting in touch, Diane, and congratulations on having your piece included. So, hey, if you are out there in the Philadelphia uh, area and you're around uh, what after November 9th, you should go check out this exhibit. Yeah. See Diane's work. All right, here we've got a short one, but uh, but one with a very good reference. So this is in uh, regards to our gastroautomaton episode about the like the uh, canard digerateur, the duck that uh, the, the mechanical duck that eats and poops. This is from Dan. 
Dan writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I was listening to your Dreams of a Gastroautomaton episode when you mentioned machines playing musical instruments. Now, this is a thing that uh, the same guy who created the the Pooping Duck, you know, the, the Canard de Girateur, also made these automata that were human-like figures that would actually play musical instruments like a flute by blowing into them and doing the fingerings. Right, yes. The flute was the key one. Uh, and so uh, here Dan picks up and says, I immediately thought of Compressor Head. Who <laughs> are Compressor Head? Compressor Head are an all-robot heavy metal band, no pun intended, that look like something out of the uh, out of the 1990 sci-fi horror film Hardware. Oh, that's a good one. I first uh, – I've never seen it, I don't think. Yeah, if I'm remembering the correct film, uh, Hardware, uh, yeah, I, I remember it being pretty good. That could also be a cross between like Short Circuit and Chopping Mall, I think. But Dan goes on, I first discovered them late last year after falling through a YouTube rabbit hole, and it is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on the web. I've provided a link down below to a live video of them playing the eternal Motorhead classic, Ace of Spades. They're far more entertaining and better than most flesh-based cover bands I've seen. I have seen the future of rock and roll and its robots. Love everything you do. Keep up the good work, Dan. I went and watched this. It's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. Like, it is it, – it, it rocks. Well, it's interesting that he mentioned Motorhead because Lemmy uh, is actually in uh, the uh, 1990 film Hardware that he's referencing here. No way. Yeah, yeah. Lemmy's in it. Uh, Iggy Pop is in it. Uh, it was a yeah, Richard Stanley film. Uh, and, it, yeah, it's quite interesting. Uh, worth, worth picking out if you want a, like a nice slice of, like, of weird 1990s horror sci-fi. Rampaging robot, that sort of thing. What does Lemmy do in it? I think he's a taxi driver, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's what I remember. Yeah, I think he's driving <laughs> like a weird, like semi-post-apocalyptic taxi, which which was appropriate, I think. Oh man, if you like Motorhead or you like metal, yeah, look up Compressor Head, Ace of Spades. It is brutal. It is so good. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from James. James says, hello, Robert and Joe, long-time listener since the stuff from the science lab days. Okay, that, that was the original title of our other show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, back when I hosted it with uh, Allison Loudermilk. Anyway, it continues, and this is my first time writing in. Well, it took you long enough. It's been almost <laughs> 10 years. Uh, in the Motion Picture Part 3 episode, you guys mentioned how you wanted to hear more musicians synchronize music to a trip to the moon. Yeah. Well, my brother Trevor plays guitar in a contemporary chamber group uh, for which the composer writes modern pieces to accompany silent films. Yes. They have performed a number of shows in and around the Detroit area, chief among them being uh, at the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. They're called the Andrew Alden Ensemble. And by the way, if you want to look that up, uh, andrewaldenensemble.bandcamp.com is the place to find them. Uh, and they've not only done a modern take on A Trip to the Moon, but also Nosferatu, <sighs> which they've performed on Halloween for the last few years, as well as a few other movies. Uh, I'll include a link to their Bandcamp page, which I just shared, so you can check out the music. If you find yourself in the Detroit area or, uh, or happen to catch them on tour, they're a great treat. Anyway, sorry for rambling, but I love both of your shows. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, thanks, James. I feel like uh, everybody's getting in touch with great art now. Yeah, this is a really uh, art-heavy episode. Museum-worthy fiber arts, compressor head, uh, soundtracks to silent films. This is, this is my jam. All right. Well, let's go to the next bit of listener mail because this is going to bring us back more into the science realm of things. 
Okay. All right, this one comes to us from Morgan. Morgan says, hi, guys. Love the podcast. I'm an avid listener of all things Joe and Robert. I'm a research assistant in the Entunes lab at the University of North Texas Biodiscovery Department, and we work within the realm of synthetic biology concerning plant genes. Our aim is to create plants with genes that will move us toward a sustainable future, like crop production, oil uh, upregulation for livestock feed, cloth fibers, and more. When we create specific genes we want to insert into plants, we have to first insert the genes into bacteria, and then the bacteria can in turn transfect the plants. The DNA transfer that comes from the bacteria to the plant is what alters the plant's genome. When we insert genes into bacteria and grow them on an agar plate, we want to select for just those bacteria. We eliminate the possibility of growing other bacteria by also adding antibiotic resistance to the bacterial genome, in addition to our genes of interest, or GOI. We can then grow up bacteria carrying our GOI on an agar plate that contains antibiotics in it, and the bacteria will grow due to the resistance gene we've placed in it, while all other bacterial strains will die. Therefore, we only grow the exact bacterial strain we want. I've personally inserted genes into agrobacterium uh, that have as many as four different antibiotic resistances, and I know scientists who have gone up to five. I thought this might be an interesting addition to the podcast. As I said, love your podcast, so Keep them coming. Best regards, Morgan. Oh, that's interesting, Morgan. So this sort of seems in line with uh, when you go way back to Alexander Fleming, who first discovered these uh, effects of penicillin. Fleming did say originally that that penicillin might be useful in, uh, in uh, for medical purposes, but remember they had trouble initially producing enough penicillin to be medically useful. Um, so some of the original uses he was talking about for it were not in medicine, but were just in research, right? And I imagine he probably would have had some kind of obviously not genetic engineering because they didn't know about genetic engineering at that point, but would have had some kinds of uh, research of this type in mind, right? That you could separate out. Uh, penicillin vulnerable bacteria from penicillin, uh, you know, non vulnerable bacteria. Yeah, this is an interesting bit of insight uh, from someone with uh, with lab experience, and uh, and it's not the only uh, bit of uh, of, of such a re- you know, research oriented uh, penicillin feedback that we received. No, also in response to our penicillin episode, we got an epic monster email from our listener Daniel, which is really good. Uh, it's long, so we might split it up and, and sort of take turns reading here. So Daniel writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I enjoy both of your guys' podcasts very much, but I'm writing today in reference to the Invention episode on penicillin. I'm a research associate in a lab that studies tuberculosis, and I've never felt the need to write to a podcast before, but two ideas came to mind following this episode, the one about penicillin. First, when you were talking about what the world might look like if penicillin and antibiotics weren't discovered, or at least not for a few decades— I thought about one ramification that pretty much no one outside the molecular biology world would think of, and that's the idea of DNA transformation. It's sort of the basis for all genetic studies, and the entire thing revolves around antibiotics, both the fact that they effectively kill bacteria and that there exist specific proteins or versions of proteins that confer resistance to the antibiotics. 
as an example, imagine you wanted to add a gene into E. coli to see what it does. Usually this is done on a circular piece of DNA called a plasmid. So you add billions of copies of this DNA plasmid into a tube containing billions of E. coli bacteria. And you force them to uptake the plasmid, either through electricity or their natural heat stress response. But even this is rather inefficient. So how do you make sure that the E. coli have taken up the plasmid? You don't want to study a population of bacteria where only 10% got the plasmid you're interested in studying. You need a pure population. And the way we do this is by including an antibiotic resistance gene on that plasmid. So after you induce the E. coli to take up the plasmid, you can select for the plasmid-positive bacteria by culturing them in the presence of that antibiotic. All the bugs that did not get the plasmid will die, while those that did will express the resistance protein and survive and eventually divide, and the daughter cells will also have that plasmid as well. This is the basis for practically all genetic experiments where you need to select for a population that received your specific DNA of interest, and it's hard to imagine what would take the place of an antibiotic in that selection process. Hopefully I've described this well enough. I think you did. Uh, Robert, do you want to take over for a minute here? Yeah, I'll I'll jump in here. Number two, the other thing I wanted to tell you about is related to a novel class of antibiotics. Our lab doesn't really work on antibiotic resistance that much, but of course TB is an important global pathogen and is naturally hard to treat. I think Joe mentioned how long a treatment it is, usually six months of a cocktail of multiple drugs. And it's, uh, it's also rapidly developing resistance. But we did have a side project in the lab studying a class of antibiotics called serragenins. One thing you guys probably didn't have time to get into is how bacteria develop resistance to antibiotics. I guess there are three main ways. The two that are very simple are increasing the amount of efflux pumps and limiting the amount of import pumps. If a chemical is causing damage to the cell, just get it out or don't bring it in. Bacteria have some promiscuous pump systems, (laughs) and these work pretty well, but these are more like increasing tolerance and might just mean more drug is needed to kill them, as opposed to developing real resistance, which comes from the third way, mutagenesis. If your antibiotic chemical works by inhibiting a certain uh, specific protein, the bacteria can just change the protein in such a way that it still performs its cellular function, but the antibiotic no longer recognizes it. It's quite amazing that bacteria are able to do this at all. As far as we know, there seems to be no chemical that works against bacteria uh, that, that they haven't found a way to develop a resistance to through mutagenesis. Some types of resistance are so well characterized that we know the exact base pair change that needs to occur for that specific drug to no longer be effective. However, this is an incredibly inefficient process because mutagenesis happens randomly throughout the genome. But that's where bacteria's power to replicate comes into play. If a base pair of mutations happens once every thousand generations and there are one billion base pairs, it seems like thin odds, but it's really only a matter of time before the bacteria get lucky. And just like the transformation of plasmid, these resistant mutants will be able to survive and replicate, and since the resistance is heritable, eventually overtake the population. This is often mitigated by using multiple drugs with different targets because two mutations occurring in different genes at the same time is even more unlikely. All right, I'm going to tag out, Joe. Okay, okay. So uh, Daniel continues, uh, uh, referring back to this class of new antibiotics he mentioned. 
Anyway, the new class I mentioned, seraginins, are based around being a structural mimic to a human microbial peptide called LL37. As you discussed, most antibiotics like penicillin, tetracycline, etc. come from microbes, but LL37 is a peptide, a string, meaning a string of amino acids, that human cells produce themselves, which has been shown to have broad antimicrobial activity. Huh, so this is a weird, uh, inter- what would be the god of the humans? to compete with uh, Jubilix and Zugtomoy. Oh, I don't know. The, the humans have a lot of gods in Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, sometimes they'll up and worship uh, Zugtomoy if they have a, you know, if they have good reason to. Oh, okay. I guess we can come back to this one. Uh, but uh, Daniel continues. As you can imagine, there would be quite a lot of issues getting pharmacological amounts of, su- of a substance that is produced by human cells. Also, interestingly, synthesizing strings of amino acids is not an easy process. Cells make it look so easy. So even ex vivo production of LL37 wouldn't really be feasible. So people have created these seraginins as chemical mimics to the LL37 peptide. So what is their mechanism? The way people think they work is by disrupting the plasma membranes of bacterial cells. All bacteria have plasma membranes. And while most antibiotics work on a bacterial protein like tetracycline inhibiting the ribosome and ampicillin inhibiting proteins that help synthesize the cell wall, the seraginins seem to attack the membrane by disrupting the lipids themselves and forming holes between them, causing the cells to lyse. And that's L-Y-S-E. I mean, I think that means basically break down or break apart. This is important because there is no real way to mutate the plasma membrane to develop resistance since lipids are not encoded genetically. They're metabolized by genetically encoded enzymes, but the species of lipid themselves are not. Possibly there could be a way for them to alter the composition, which uh, flavor of lipid makes – meaning which flavor of lipid makes up the majority of the membrane. But it's much less likely as it would probably require large changes to the genome as opposed to single base mutations. One question you may ask is, why don't these compounds attack the mammalian membranes? We have plasma membranes and the answer, unfortunately, is that they probably do – He continues, what makes antibiotics special is not just that they kill microbes, but that they don't kill us. Right. (laughs) Most of the classic compounds act on cellular machinery that humans don't have, like cell walls and bacterial ribosomes. Sulfuric acid is a great antibiotic. Unfortunately, it's also a great (laughs) anti-human. Right. The same would be true of heat. (laughs) Yeah. So when you put these seraginins as well as LL37 on mammalian cells at high concentrations, they kill the cells. What might be happening to make LL37 not kill the mammalian cells is uh, in our bodies that produce it is that they are packaged in a careful way and local concentration is controlled such that the bacteria encounter a high enough uh, molarity to kill them but not the mammalian cells, maybe even so highly specialized as to take advantage of different surface area to volume ratios. So maybe synthesizing a mimic of LL37 that is much more potent might not even be what is desired if it will kill too many mammalian cells. Adding to this complication is that it seems LL37 has some immunomodulating effects on mammalian cells uh, being implicated in inflammation signaling, which may play a big role in how it's used in the body to fight infection. So long story short, 
too late. The new class of ceranogens might not be as groundbreaking as the initial wave of antibiotics, but perhaps if we get a better understanding of LL37's exact mechanism, we can try to improve on it in the lab. But it is hard to imagine scientists beating natural selection if LL37 is in some sort of Goldilocks region of cell lytic activity. Although the ceraginins are currently used as topical antibiotics because it doesn't matter so much if you kill skin cells and they appear to work really well against biofilms, which are notoriously hard to treat. Apologies for the long emails. You or your guys' podcasts are always so well-researched and broken down perfectly. It's really difficult to describe things in a simple enough way that it is understandable for those who know nothing about the subject, while also detailed enough that people who are familiar don't consider it incorrect. Keep up the good work. Best, Daniel. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, and uh, thank you for illuminating with your expertise on this subject. I didn't know anything about this, uh, the seraginin class. Yeah, yeah, um, which I have to say, every time that we, uh, we, we said it, I was imagining like a Monty Python-esque knight yeah. of seraginins right. uh, you know, riding into battle. Right. Against the, the pathogens. The knights who lice knee. Yeah. Right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, no, uh, but that is really interesting thinking about the methods that these different uh, uh, antibiotics work. Like the antimicrobials have some kind of mechanism that they mm-hmm. work by. And generally the mechanism is something that the bacterial cells can overcome if it's uh, some kind of chemical poison or whatever. So the, the trick is finding something – that hurts their cells in a way that they can't just get a mutation to overcome, but that doesn't hurt our cells also. Uh, and this and this apparently does hurt our cells also, but, you know, it's got these modulating effects. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But don't worry. When we come back, we will, we will listen to some listener mails concerning needles. All right. We're back. So uh looks like we've got a couple of listeners writing in about hypodermic needles. We uh, just recently had an episode on the hypodermic syringe. Should we do this one from Nicola first? Yeah. Okay. Nicola writes in says, hey, guys, I love your show. Just wanted to throw in my two cents about needles. I'm a 22-year-old university student studying mechanical engineering. Ever since I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease about seven years ago, I've had many more encounters with needles. Over the years, I became used to injections and blood draws to the point where now it's actually comforting and pleasant. Oh, Robert, you were asking about this in the episode. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting to to know like regular needle users uh, – uh, you know what? How how you how that changes your relationship with the technology? Right. Uh, so Nicola says, I know that sounds awfully strange and foreign, but I enjoy the feeling of cold liquid entering my veins and warm blood rushing out. Now you might be thinking that sounds reasonable, but there's no way you like the actual injection itself. But you would be wrong. It brings me to a state of relaxation, uh, forces me to relax. The sharp pinch of the needle has actually become a feeling that brings fondness to my life. Knowing that I'm going to get the medication I need to be healthy allows me to look past the pain and discomfort to see the big picture. My appreciation for modern medicine and medical uh, and engineering accomplishments allows me to appreciate the process and take it as it is, a modern miracle. I'd like to thank you guys for the amazing content you provide. I love how you're able to integrate many fields of study and history into a comprehensive piece of culture and science. There's so much I've learned from your show, and I wait patiently each week for the next episode. Oh, and Nicola also suggests uh, in the future that we cover some technology behind uh, behind factories and mass-produced items. 
Uh, oh, yes. Like, uh, I very much want to. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've been doing a little reading on this, just looking at yeah, the, the way factories have evolved uh, um, over the decades and like where we are now with, with, the manu- with manufacturing uh, and also just uh, uh, beyond just simply manufacturing things within a, within a factory, but also moving those products around, like dealing with the, the overall supply chain and logistics. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's far more fascinating than I uh, expected. I mean, it causes you to rethink what your idea of technology is. Is the technology just one piece of physical infrastructure that's all touching itself? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, I mean, can you think about it, supply chains and stuff being technologies on their own, even if they oh, consist yeah. of like multiple different uh, things at all different points that are not necessarily touching or even interacting? Well, it brings me back to our discussions of the toilet. You know, it's one thing to invent the toilet. Uh, but if you do not have, and they certainly did not have this when uh, upon its initial invention of the flush toilet in uh, in, uh, in England, if you do not have a sewer system that can facilitate that toilet, then you really don't have a modern toilet. Exactly, you have you have an incomplete link in an overall chain, uh, and and that can be said for a lot of things concerning the supply chain and, and manufacturing. Is that uh, you know it's an, it, great you have this one robot that's fabulous, uh, but uh, it's it's not going to do everything itself. It needs it needs to, it needs to have a place in this overall system, and then other aspects of the system need to be brought online, uh, you know, to where it can keep up with it. Uh, uh, you know, the same can be said of other things like uh, additive technology, additive manufacturing, uh, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I think that would be a, a wonderful thing to discuss. We could probably do a multi-episode uh, series, you know, because essentially you're dealing with uh, some of the major movements in you know, the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, totally. All right. Uh, here comes another one. This one is from Carissa. Hey, guys, I really like the podcast. As someone who works in a clinic that has a whole room dedicated to shots, hooray for allergy shots, <laughs> uh, it was quite interesting. I think the secret to not being afraid of needles is just exposure therapy. Most people don't get many needles in their lives, and the ones they do get are far and few between. But in the clinic I work in, we see adults and pediatric patients for allergy shots, and the room where those are administered is probably the quietest room in the whole clinic. You don't even hear children crying in that room when they get their shots, probably because they start out coming in multiple times a week and then gradually get fewer uh, as time goes on until they're at once a month maintenance dose. I used to be freaked out by needles, but now they fascinate me. I had a couple of days in the hospital a few years ago for some gallbladder-related issues, had to have a couple of surgeries while I was there, plus they had to stick me at least 20 times, not even exaggerating there, to get an IV in me because I was so dehydrated because I literally couldn't eat for a week. After that, I was no longer phased by needles. It's a good thing, too, because now I'm on an injectable medication and give myself a shot once every other week. When I tell people this, they get squeamish and ask how I can make myself give myself a shot, but it really doesn't even bother me. So long story short, if you want to get over your fear and discomfort around needles without a major health crisis, just donate blood as often as you can. Thanks for an interesting listen. Carissa. And uh, yeah, she's definitely right on that because uh, one of the things about giving blood, of course, is that it's not just a quick jab. It's, uh, you know, they insert the needle and then the needle stays in there. So you have have a little time to think about it and try not to think about it. Uh, You know, if you're like me, you're not really wanting to look at it. Generally, you know, they, they do cover it up with a little piece of gauze so you're not actually looking at the injection. But but yeah, I, I, every time I go, I do feel a certain amount of like that exposure therapy taking place where at first I'm like, 
yeah, I don't really want to look at this needle and then this growing bag of blood that's underneath my chair. Yeah. But after you've been there a little bit and you've had time to sort of get bored with the whole thing, you're, you know, you're kind of over the fear. Right. When do I get my Twinkie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a similar experience I've had on really uh, like irritating plane flights in the past mm-hmm. where if I'm initially dealing with some level of flying anxiety, if the people around me are annoying enough – uh, then, then I can I can push through that fear of death, and, um, and you know, and almost crave it uh, because I'm so tired of other humans. Well, I'd say actually the same thing that uh, is being described here with needles has happened to me with flying. I used to be much more afraid of flying until I just had to do it more for work and just having to get on a plane several times a year without it really being up to me or not. You know, yeah. I just got to go there. You know, uh, that that just. Basically, I'm over it now. Yeah, it's kind of like the more uh, like the more primitive uh, layers of your your brain architecture uh, begin to get the message that uh, okay, yeah, that I think this is going to be okay. Granted, that's not every brain, but uh, but still, I think this is some interesting insight on uh, just re- regular exposure to needles versus the reality that yeah, most of us when we're getting a shot, it's what one shot a year, maybe two shots a year, that sort of thing, uh, as opposed to regular like weekly shots. But I would say in both of these cases, these messages from Nicola and Carissa both sound like a sort of cognitive victories over the instinct, right? We've yeah. got this weird instinctual fears of needles, but the, it seems like in both cases they're able to think their way through it. Yeah. All right. Here's one about vending machines. Oh, okay. Yeah. This one comes from Stefan. Hi, all. I was driving to a coffee shop to do some late night coding when I accidentally ran across uh, two people talking about vending machines on AM 910 in the San Francisco Bay Area this evening. <laughs> were, are we on San Francisco radio? I didn't know that. Yeah, you knew this, Joe. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, um, the podcast is showing up in all sorts of places. Well, I didn't know that we were specifically AM there. radio stations. Oh, uh, hopefully gas pumps soon. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for that. <laughs> oh, we're going to be the thing that yells at you while you're pumping your gas. Wouldn't gas be, station TV. Wouldn't it be great, though, if if uh, if we were playing an, ep- an episode of Invention about, about gas pump history? I would actually uh-huh. love to do a gas pump episode because okay. you look at some of the older models of gas pumps and they um, – you know, they look like they're from a science fiction movie. Uh, it's 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 pretty fascinating. Oh, we've actually got uh, on the upcoming ledger. We're definitely going to do one on leaded gasoline Ooh. for uh, for an exploration of inventions gone wrong. Excellent. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Stefan continues. I ended up trapped in my car because I found the conversation really interesting and intelligent. I also did not want to get out of my car because I wanted to know what program this was. So I needed to wait, and I did. This is one of the issues, I guess, of doing a podcast. Versus that is then transformed into uh, an AM radio podcast is that, of course, it's standard in radio to continually remind the listener what you're listening to. Yeah, station identification and yeah. stuff, yeah. Speaking of, if you're just joining us on AM radio, <laughs> you're listening to the uh, podcast Invention with Robert and Joe. Hi. Anyway, Stefan continues. So I needed to wait, and I did. Eventually, it ended, and I, it was announced that it was related to inventionpod.com. All I can say is this was a great program, and I look forward to hearing the first half hour when the episode is put on the website. Oh, it's already on there. Yeah, you just sometimes you have to, I think, dig for some of the older episodes. Uh, but uh-huh. yeah, they all should be available at inventionpod.com. 
All I can say is that it was great material, thought-provoking, and uh, discussed in a really intelligent way. A really nice change from the AM band that uh, tends to shout about polarized issues these days. This was a really nice change from that. By the way, automats, uh, automats, of course, uh, are the, um, you know, the establishment you would go into that we discussed. We have all the little glass windows, little doors that you open up, put uh, money in, then you open it up and you remove a plate of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we mentioned, these are prominently featured in, in various uh, bits of media and fiction, including the film Dark City. Yeah. Um, but Stefan says, automats, uh, were, automats were still very much in evidence in Amsterdam in the 1970s, and I recall enjoying quite a few meals from the automat there. Quite possibly this automat is gone today, but it was very much in use then and quite popular in Holland back then. Regards, Stefan. Well, I'm pretty sure this is our very first uh, uh, listener from radio that we've heard from. Though, it, yeah, it is happening if you're not aware out there. So the company that now owns our podcast network is iHeartRadio and they've got radio stations. So somewhere out there, our podcasts are playing on the radio. Maybe you're listening on the radio right now. Yeah, I'm, I have to say, I sometimes do this too if I'm, if I'm out driving. I used to do it more when I was having to drive at night more. But uh, listening to like various AM radio stations, just seeing like... Like what is out there and uh-huh. encountering like weird parts oh, of conversations. Such sometimes weird stuff. Sometimes very extreme conversations, but sometimes you know refreshingly mundane. And then, but then not necessarily knowing who is talking or uh, it's a uh, it's, it's fun. It's 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 an, it's an exploration. So it is kind of neat to think that we might be uh, the gym that someone encounters <laughs> right. uh, as they're driving around in the middle of the night. You find us when you're tuning between different people screaming from bunkers. <laughs> All right, here we got an international one from our listener, Tomas. Uh, Tomas says, hello from Sweden. I have now listened to you for about a year. I have no idea how I found you, but enjoy listening to you. Your mix of science, myths, and popular culture is what makes the shows enjoyable. I guess you can't put every movie reference in your episodes. Uh, we'll, we'll give it a shot, Tomas. We try. <laughs> uh, but he says, uh, there are two that I feel you should have picked up on. The first one is from your series on the motion picture. You talked about Edward Mybridge and his multiple image camera that captured the movement of a horse. I immediately thought of the groundbreaking visual effects of the Matrix that used a similar setup, taking movie, making full circle. I, I think he means the, the multi-camera setup, yeah, that was oh, used so to the, do like the bullet, bullet time, time stuff, yeah. yeah. Uh, the bullet time effect, as it's called, allows the audience to view an actor suspended in space and time while the camera moves around the actor. It's made possible by synchronizing 50 DSLR cameras around the actor. It was developed by the film's visual effects supervisor, John Gaeta. Yeah, I kind of, you know, one of the reasons I kind of forget about this, despite having seen some behind the scenes, I think everybody saw some behind the scenes stuff about how they shot that sequence back in the day. Uh But it also was just so well done. I almost don't think about it as a special effect, you know? Uh-huh. But uh, ton, there were tons of copycats, like cheap copycats yeah. in the movies that came afterwards. The well, er- and also just obvious parodies as exactly. well. Exactly. Well, the, the parodies are one thing, but I love the early 2000s movies. There was uh, there was an Uwe Boll movie that did the House of the Dead. Oh, I, just, I've, I've not seen any of his filmography, I have to say. House of the Dead is extremely bad, but it's full of like – I'd say half the the runtime of the movie is bullet time shots. Okay, watch it or you're going to wind up in a boxing match. Uh, uh, Tomas continues. The next reference is regarding the episode Gastroautomaton. When talking about making androids uh, human by letting them eat, you failed to mention one of your favorite movies, RoboCop. See, Tomas Ah. knows us. (laughs) 
That's uh, right. In the movie, they show a machine that produces something similar to baby food that RoboCop eats to supply nutrients to his organic body parts. One of the technicians finds it really tasty. Looking forward to hearing more of your interesting podcast. Kind regards, Tomas. You know, this does drive home that uh, we need to do a Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode that focuses on RoboCop. Because you know, certainly RoboCop comes up a lot. Have we not already basically done the whole movie? Well, I thought about that, but then I'm reminded of the the baby food, and I'm reminded of some <laughs> other scenes too. That, like for instance, there's the the toxic waste sequence, Ooh, uh, yeah. which traumatized me at an early age. But I, I kind of want to like you know face the trauma and take that scene apart and discuss like what's actually happening in the scene and how that matches up with reality. And I'm sure there's other. I, I haven't actually sat down and watched it. Uh, beginning to end in quite a long time. So I'm sure there's other stuff in there that we could you know, squeeze out a proper movie episode. We try and do one episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind a month, roughly, in which we, we, use, we just focus around a particular movie. We talk a little bit about the movie's history and uh, you know, some of the, the curious facts about it. But mostly we use uh, bits of the film as, as a springboard uh, to discuss topics that either wouldn't come up otherwise on the show, wouldn't uh, you know, necessitate an entire episode, or, you know, something where it puts a new spin on an old topic. Mm-hmm. I like how uh, this one listener can tell that RoboCop is one of our favorite movies just from listening to the show. And I, I don't even know when we ever said that. But it's uh, true. It's true. It comes up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think at one point you also told listeners that if they, they wanted their listener mail read, that they should put oh. RoboCop in the uh, in the title, which That's is which true. is not required. We 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 t- we pretty much read everything. We don't have time to share it all. We don't have time to uh, read it all on on listener mail episodes of either show. Uh, but we will read your listener mail even if it does not say RoboCop uh, in the header. All right, we're going to have to call it there because we're out of time. We had some more uh, little uh, listener mail bits we wanted to read, but you know we had some some wonderful suggestions. People asking for say more uh, health related topics uh, in the future, that sort of thing. Uh, and yeah, I think in in the future we do want to continue to just try and and hit all the sweet spots. You know, more medical technology, more ancient inventions, more recent inventions, more RoboCop, <laughs> more, Robo, more more RoboCop for stuff to blow your mind. But for invention. Uh, you know we're gonna, uh, you know we're gonna try and just keep cast the net wide as we have thus far. Uh, thank you so much to all these people who got in touch. And again, if we didn't have a chance to read your uh, email on the episode today, please don't take that as an insult. We really, really love and appreciate all the email we get. So thank you so much. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of this podcast, Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's where you'll find. All the episodes that have come out, Uh, there are no secret episodes of Invention. They're all right there. And if you want to support our show, uh, one of the best things you can do is if you're listening to this in podcast form, wherever you got that podcast, make sure you have subscribed to us and make sure that you uh, rate and review wherever you have the power to do so. Oh, and also, if you are a reverse order listener, we imagine most of the people who listen to Invention listen to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our other podcast first. But if you're the other way around, if you came to Invention first, you should go subscribe to Stuff to Blow Your Mind if you haven't already. Yeah, go check it out. Uh, yeah, we've been doing it for almost 10 years. And, uh, you know, I, as always, I say start with the, the more recent episodes because the, the science is just going to be fresher. And hopefully, you know, our, 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 you know, we'll be a little better in the more <laughs> recent episodes. But, uh, but check those out. Yeah, uh, you'll find those at uh, StuffToBlowYourMind.com.
Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or uh, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, any of that, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 